This is the fourth vision of Zechariah in which we have a, a courtroom setting, if you will, uh, with the angel, angel of the Lord as the judge, Joshua the high priest as the defendant, and of course, Satan as the accuser. Uh, there's a lot of interesting symbolic language uh, going on here, so pay close attention to that as we read. Zechariah chapter 2, we'll start in verse 10 and read the entire chapter, uh, the third chapter. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on that on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The grace and peace of Jesus be with all of you. I invite you to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and we'll be taking our primary text from this introduction to the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> While it might be slightly odd to begin a series on the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, with the introduction to Revelation, there are some corollaries, possibly that of authorship, uh, Brother, jo Brother James has been teaching from the epistles uh, of, the, of John. We're hoping to look at the Gospel of John. And this is the revelation given to John. What is not 100% certain is that these are all three the same John. But many scholars do believe it's the same John, the disciple of Jesus. John states very clearly in the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John, technically, John states his purpose very, very clearly. In chapter 20, uh, verse 
31, he says, this book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's an audacious statement. This man that he's chronicling in the history, he wants us to believe upon reading this gospel that that man was the Messiah, the anointed one from God, one of the Trinity, one of the members of the Trinity. And he says, if that happens, if you believe that, you will have life in his name. We all fear death. What most of us aren't keenly aware of in our unregenerate state is that we're dead. But that's the description of humanity apart from Christ. And the disciple John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, says, I want you to read this, and I want you to know that Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And he has full confidence that when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you will be alive. Made alive. And it's an eternal kind of life. This passage from Revelation has a very concise, kind of all-inclusive statement about this Jesus spoken of in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels and found throughout Scripture. And it comes with a revelation, the book is called Revelation, well after the establishment of the church. It comes through the coming of the Spirit on this day by an angel to John. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 8, and we'll be focusing in on verse 5, and I want to just read that before we read the context. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Pardon me. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is an incredible statement about this man, Jesus. 
describes him as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. And then it breaks out in this doxology, addressing him as the one who loves us, the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood, has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This vision of Christ does inspire that kind of outbreak of praise and worship. But who is this Jesus? How do we know him? How do we understand him? And we're looking at these three offices today, that of prophet, priest, and king, that are addressed here in this passage to help us understand who Jesus is. And it's been a number of weeks ago that I preached a sermon specifically on the priesthood of all believers. This is directly tied into that, connected to that, and I think the next time I'm on the calendar to preach is in September, and it's what we're calling uh, kind of the, the state of the church address. And this provides a bit of foundation to what I have to say in September, when we kind of take a candid look at us as a congregation, where we are in our maturity level, in our place in time, in our place in history, and what it is that the Lord may be calling us to going forward. And I'd like to lay this as a bit of a foundation to that as well. It's also a foundation in some other ways. You know, the Bible, uh, to most of us, and I'm going to say to all of us, is a very complex book. Uh, It's not something you pick up typically, open page one, get caught in a cliffhanger, and can't lay down till you've finished Revelation. You know, I don't find many people. If if that's the way you start off, you get to Leviticus, and it's like, uh, and then Numbers, it's like, what in the world is that all about? And you just kind of bog down and struggle. I'm going to suggest to you that keeping these three offices in mind will also help us understand the big story of the Bible. Not only that, it helps us to understand then who the person of Jesus is, because all of Scripture really is ultimately about Jesus, points to Christ, helps us to understand him, and is written to elicit faith from us in response to this Jesus. So these three offices are then represented in the Gospels. We'll touch that briefly. But the book of John, the Gospel of John, is just kind of different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke. You know, we can kind of make sense of those as a bit of biographical, telling the story of Jesus, what he did, what he said, how he went about living his life, and finally how he died. You get to the Gospel of John, it's different. It's very different. But it's one of the favorite books for many people, one of the favorite kind of narratives in the Bible. How does Jesus, this Jesus, how is he disclosed through all four of those Gospels? Back to our introductory passage here. This is a revelation, a kind of single revelation that comes to John. It's a revelation, and the the little word of there 
uh, can be read in several different ways. The revelation of Jesus Christ, as Jesus is put on display, it's also revelation for, from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the author of the revelation. And we see that it's a revelation of God that God gave to his son Jesus. Jesus gives to an angel who then speaks to John. And John sees the vision and simply writes what he has received. And the one who is glorified in this is the God-man Jesus. And then he pronounces this blessing on anybody who takes time to read aloud. And it's interesting the ESV translates it that way. Read aloud this book. So if you're feeling dried up, you feel like you need a blessing, here's a simple one, right? Get a few friends together, read it aloud. Blessed are those who read aloud this prophecy. More than that, blessed are the ones then who hear it and the ones who keep it, whose lives are shaped in obedience toward this Jesus after they hear this revelation. And again, part of that is because this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king, the one who transcends all, who's above all. John then in turn addresses this to the seven churches in Asia. Each church is addressed specifically in the next few chapters in a very brief section, but all are addressed collectively in this entirety of this revelation. I want you to notice too that the Trinitarian God is referenced as the source of grace and peace in verse 4. This grace to you and peace comes from who? If you're going to receive grace and you're going to find a place of peace, where does it come from? It comes from the Trinitarian God. And God the Father, with echoes of his self-declared name, the I Am, is referenced here as him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the great I Am. God the Spirit, while rather addressed rather obscurely, uh, almost all scholars believe this is a direct reference to the Holy Spirit from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Could also be translated the sevenfold spirit, the one who is complete, adequate for the seven churches which represent the churches of the entire world throughout history. And finally, <clears throat> and probably in this order because Jesus is the focal point, Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I want you to note those three phrases. We'll be coming back to them repeatedly. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the faithful witness as a prophet, the firstborn of the dead as a priest, and the ruler of the kings on the earth as king or king of kings and lord of lords. Results then in this doxology of praise to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Who is this person that evokes such a worshipful outburst of praise? This is the one about whom John's gospel was written. The one whom John is urging people to acknowledge as the Son of God, to believe in him, and that by believing, you will receive life in his name. And it leads us personally to ask this most significant question, the most significant question you will ever be faced with in life is, who is he? This man that walked the hills of Palestine 2,000 years ago, who died on a cross, was resurrected, appears again here 
in splendor to one of his disciples, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? We all will have to answer that question. We have to answer it. And while it may not seem so urgent today, John makes it very clear there's a time coming when every eye will see him. Again, most remarkable claim. A man who lived 2,000 years ago, walking the hills of Palestine, was murdered on a tree, was resurrected from the dead three days later, his followers say, and now they're saying he's going to come back with clouds. Every eye is going to see him, including the ones who hung him on the tree. Now, I don't know what that would do to you, but you know, as a, as a student in school, played a trick on your teacher, and then suddenly you encounter the teacher, strikes terror to the heart. But can you imagine nailing a man to a tree and then seeing that man breaking the clouds? Every eye is going to see him. Everyone will answer the question, who is that man? Even those who crucified him. So it's an inescapable question, and it becomes incredibly important. He is described here as a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. He is described as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. We're going to describe the offices briefly, look at how the eras of, this, of the Bible also illustrate these eras, and finally how Jesus fulfills them. Who is a priest? He is one who cares for the house of God, according to God's law. Priests didn't have a lot of space for creativity, and the latest and the greatest. Their operations manual was Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Very specific. God gave this to Moses, said, Moses, you give it to the priests, and priests, this is how you do it. This is exactly how you do things. So priests were ones who operated under the law of God with very careful prescribed activities. I mean, they were to look at people's skin and see what color of the hair, if there was a blotch on the skin, see what color the hair was coming out. And if it was this color, they were to do that. And if it was that color, they were to do this. I mean, it was all very, very specific. So they served in God's house. They served the people of God, and they served God by serving in the house according to the laws that God had given. There's a mediator aspect to the office of priest. And then there's the office of king. Maybe a tad more familiar to us, but kings had to go beyond the prescription of what was written. Kings didn't have operation manuals. They were required to live by wisdom. Now, they needed to know the law. They had to be based in it. They had to be rooted in the knowledge of the law. But when an enemy came up, they had to decide would they send their army into battle or not. And if they were going to send the army into battle, uh, which division was going to go first? Which one was going to be sent out this way to provide a trap so the others could be successful? Who were they going to sacrifice? This is the decisions King David made day in and day out. And there was no carefully prescribed 
set of rules like for the priest. Kings had to be wise, and they had to be discerning, and they had to make judgment calls that cost people. But it was rooted in knowledge of the law, but addressed far more complex situations. And then prophets are another different kind of office. Prophets, in some ways, are people who pass judgment on a current era, a current people and their behaviors and practices, and strictly with their words alone, chart out a new pathway. So they pass judgment, describe what's wrong, and then say, thus saith the Lord, and they chart a new pathway forward. A prophet is one who by his words tears down an old world and creates a new one. Not merely repeating what's been said before, or applying the old ways to the new situations, like priests, but a prophet was someone who was in consultation with God, and we'll see that some high prophets, God even consulted with these men. Which leaves us baffled. A priest is an obedient servant. A king is a wise ruler. A prophet is something beyond that. A prophet is the mature image of God, who consults with God and is consulted by God. Each of these three offices have a responsibility of passing judgment. The priest passes judgment according to the rules of the law. The king passes judgment according to wisdom. Judgment is associated even more clearly with the prophets who pronounce judgment on a whole culture. And that judgment ends one period of history, initiates a new period of history. And we'll illustrate this here in just a moment. Each has a distinctive quality. The priest, his quality is obedient service based on the law. The quality of a king is that of wisdom, of having a wise rule. And that's where the wisdom literature of Solomon and the Psalms of David are birthed out of kingship. Wrestling, discerning, struggling with reality, trying to find paths of wisdom. And then the distinctive quality of a prophet is that of a message of transformation and renewal. Now, in the cycles of history, which we'll look at again just briefly, in this cycle, a prophet is always present at the beginning and at the end of these various eras of history. So think with me for a moment about Noah. Noah prophesied before the flood that there would be great judgment. There was judgment. God washed the world, and Noah was there to establish the new, based on the Noahic covenant that God gave to Noah. Abraham, he was a prophet, and he had a priestly action in which when God gave him a command, he left, he obeyed a very simple command to leave his homeland and go somewhere. And he went. His son Jacob ruled. Isaac kind of blew that one. Jacob, his grandson, was the kingly representation of that era that Abraham launched. Joseph initiated the transforming era that brought them back in, and prophets usually go outside their territory to new areas. Joseph is in Egypt now. God has expanded his reach down into this empire known as Egypt. Then think of Moses. Moses, as a prophet, ended the era of slavery, opened up the next, 
And we'll look at this more specifically because it's the story of Israel. And he closes that one out as well. But there's something even a little closer to us that's a parallel to our own maturity. Priesthood has a parallel in childhood. Kingship has a parallel in adulthood. And being a prophet has a parallel to the aged, gray-haired, who now speak wisdom. So childhood is an era of the priest. If children don't learn to obey rules, they'll never grow to maturity. Again, I, at the risk of just dragging this out. The initial priesthood phase, Adam, simply one rule. Don't eat that tree. Adam couldn't even be a good child. And the, the saga began. Children that don't learn the meaning of no will never progress to wisdom. And so there's a sense in which the task of the priest is in the house, clearly explaining the law of God that has been clearly prescribed and expecting compliance. But we don't want to stay there. There's more to life. There's work to be done. And that's the task of the king. This is adulthood, the era of wisdom, and it requires more than rules to live well. It requires discernment for going, discernment for deciding, discernment for ruling. And let me just insert here, while we are all priests, Scripture in various places says, would that all were prophets. God said that in the Old Testament. He reaffirms that in the New Testament. So there's a sense in which we are all called to be priests, kings, and prophets. But then there are people who hold those offices, priest, king, and prophet. And there are finally high priests and high kings and high prophets of whom Jesus is the epitome of them all and is the person that represents all of it. So from childhood to time of rules, adulthood an era of wisdom and kingship, and finally that of the elder, the life of wisdom that now speaks. People get to a certain age, they can't go out and be kings. They can't govern wars and take on the battles of kingship. But they sit in the gates. And they tell the stories of the past. And they say, this is what happened. And this is what you must learn. And it's interesting, in the old societies, those were the people who typically gave the rules to the youngest generation because the parents were so busy in their activities of kingship. That's when all three generations lived in the same household. This is the natural progression of maturity from childhood, priesthood, from a, into adulthood or kingship, and finally to the position of an elder or prophet in the senior years of life. Not all make this progression. There are many adults who have never surrendered to the rules. There are many elders or seniors who have never reflected adequately on life to advise prophetically. And whenever you see that, it's a failure of maturity. I want to just quickly suggest that this is also true of churches, of institutions, of nations. Some make the maturity, the journey of maturity, some don't. But this is the pathway. It's the pathway God initiated in, in Eden and took through the flood. It's the pathway God initiated with, Mo with Abraham, took into 
Joseph. It's the pathway God initiated with the nation of Israel, with Moses, until he took them into the land and gave them a king. And then the prophets came to declare their brokenness and announce a new kingdom. It's also contained in the Gospels as they tell the story of Jesus. I told the children this morning, and I find this one fascinating, there are four faces to the cherubim in Ezekiel, four symbols. And those four faces, there's an ox, there's a lion, there's an eagle, and the face of a man. And so each cherub had those four faces. Historically, people have put those four symbols with the four Gospels. Matthew, the first of the Gospels, the symbol of the ox, describes a priestly Jesus who gives a new law, teaches in five specific sections throughout the Gospel, just like the first five books of Moses. Jesus as priest. The Gospel of Mark. Who is the Jesus there? He's active. He's going places. And he's touching people to heal them. This is Jesus the King. And the symbol given to the book of Mark is that of the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah, which is always the symbol of kings. Matthew, the symbol of the ox. The priest who sacrifices oxen, but also a priest who, uh, ox is not considered to be a brilliant leader beast, does what he's told. Just plows, straightforward, left, right, yee, haw, whatever the words were. The third gospel, the gospel of Luke, is one that continues all the way through the book of Acts. This is Jesus now as prophet declaring a new kingdom that is advancing, where the prophets are going and announcing, and they're not just stopping in Jerusalem. They're going throughout the world. That's the nature of the role of the prophet. But John, it's just different. John is the symbol of man, the God-man, Jesus, the Son of God, And the Son of Man is a term that's used over and over and over. This man, this Son of Man, is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the true priest, king, and prophet. But he's also the new humanity. This is the high priest of all priests, the high prophet of all prophets, and the high king of all kings. We assume our offices as priests, kings, and prophets under his authority. We follow our trajectory toward the maturity that is the fullness that is in Christ from priesthood, learning to listen to when Jesus says no, learning to obey, learning to move out into wisdom and discernment, to fight the battles that are to be fought in the world. Because we're not just to dwell in the sanctuary of God, in the house and follow the rules of worship all the time. There's work to be done. There's territory to be managed. And we are charged to enter that as kings. The charge is there in Genesis. It comes all the way through the Old Testament. It's, de- it's mandated to us 
today to take authority, to exercise dominion. And for us, those fears are very different. But either we're under the authority of Jesus as we exercise our rulership or we're not. And finally, as prophets, to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ, the coming of this king, and that this prophet, priest, and king is going to come with clouds, and every eye is going to see him. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. As individuals and as churches, it's easy for us to focus on one of these offices and one of these ministries, and as a result, be somewhat immature. The call is to consider all three in their place and to be mature image bearers of Christ as we move from priesthood, kingship, into the area of the prophetic ministry. And while each of us have particular strengths in one area over another, we must always embrace the pathway of maturation that leads us from the rule-keeping of priesthood to the wisdom-guided action of kings to the announcement of a new order established by the prophets. And Jesus is inviting us today to abandon our fear of failure, to embrace the rule of Jesus by faith, to confront the challenges of our day with wisdom that's rooted in God's revelation, but is deployed by his spirit in wisdom, to align ourselves with the work Jesus is doing in the world today, joining his mission for the restoring of all things to himself. And for that, it takes the work of a priest and of a king and of a prophet. Jesus is that high priest, high king, and high prophet. And we are his subjects, called as priests and kings and prophets to participate with him. And how has he made this possible? It's because he has loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Shall we stand? Could someone lead us in the doxology?